why drug makers are shaking in their boots. This is Industry Focus. Hey everyone, welcome to Industry Focus Healthcare Edition. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and joining me on Skype is Motley Fool's healthcare contributor, Todd Campbell. Thanks for being here, Todd. How's it going up there in New Hampshire? Uh, it's going great. It's a beautiful fall day. Fall has arrived in New England. The nice. leaves will be turning soon. Mm, I bet it's going to be beautiful. So, if you guys have been following the news lately, or even just watching the healthcare portion of your portfolio slowly trickle downwards, you know that something has happened out there to threaten healthcare companies. And so today we're going to dig into the news to unpack for everybody what this all means for patients, insurers, drug makers, investors. This conversation has been ongoing, but let's start this story yesterday on Twitter. Todd? Wow, I tell you, what a crazy weekend and week it's been for healthcare investors. There's a lot to digest, so I'm not going to spend too much time talking about what got it all started so that we can dive into the meat of it. But I think what's interesting or important for investors to know is that there has been a trend in the healthcare industry for companies to go out and find drugs that have been on the market for a long time, um, but that are no longer marketed and that are, we'll call them forgotten, um, buy those on the cheap and then hike the prices and relaunch them uh, with a big marketing sales force in order to make a lot of money. Uh, This came has been happening for a while, but it kind of came to a head over the weekend when uh, a lot of patients Uh, were able to attract the attention of the New York Times. And the New York Times ran with a story um, calling out basically Turing Pharmaceuticals, a recent startup that was founded by a hedge fund manager with the sole purpose, or (laughs) maybe not the sole purpose, but one of the major purposes being to go out, buy a old drug um, for $55 million dollars, jack up the price, which they then did by almost 5,000%, somewhere between 4,000 and 5%, 5,000%, basically taking the cost from $1,350 a pill to $750 a pill. Now, obviously, that caught a lot of people's attention. And the New York Times ran with the story, and sure enough, uh, presidential hopeful Hillary Clinton read that story and saw a great opportunity to dub that dovetail that story in with her plans to try and curb drug spending. Yeah. So Hillary tweets as a reaction to this New York Times article. She says, price gouging like this in the specialty drug market is outrageous. Tomorrow, which at this point, I guess would have been yesterday, I'll lay out a plan to take it on. And so she comes out with this plan yesterday. And there are quite a few different parts to this plan. Uh, Let's start with uh, Medicare. One of the things that Hillary said in reaction is that if we give Medicare more power to negotiate, that could help bring the cost of drugs down. Todd, how exactly would that work? Well, people are probably going to be kind of surprised by this, but Medicare, you know, with 55 million members, it doesn't have the ability to go to a drug company and say, hey, listen, we've got so many members and they're all seniors and they're all going to be demanding medication or needing more medication. So why don't you give us a sweetheart price and we'll make sure that all of that volume comes your way. They're not allowed to do that. Um, A bill was passed in 2003, basically, that prevented them from being able to negotiate pricing. And that's very different than what happens at other government funded 
healthcare programs such as the VA or even Medicaid. Uh, Medicaid can get some reimbursements back from the drug maker. So Medicare is kind of hamstrung. They can only, uh, they basically end up paying whatever health insurance companies negotiate uh, in the private market. And that's probably more than they have to pay, especially when you look at some of the prices that are being paid by large um, single payer systems in other countries. Yeah, exactly. There is such a difference in what goes on in the United States versus other countries like the UK, for example. They run their bargaining through the National Institute for Clinical Evaluation. And these guys basically their whole existence is to determine what price drugs should be set at. And it uses its its research that does all this analysis on essentially when is a treatment going to be cost effective? You know, when will it uh, save money on preventing further continuation of a disease and basically save the healthcare system money. Comes up with a price and says, this is what our country will pay you for this drug. But then we get over to the United States and that's the job of private insurers who they can negotiate and they're really good at negotiating really, but their voice just isn't as loud as Medicare because there's so many of them. And so any one individual company doesn't have as big of a bargaining power as Medicare would. Absolutely. You know, Medicare is a Goliath and it's only getting bigger because there are 10,000 baby boomers who are turning 65 every day. So this is not a new idea. Uh, Hillary can't claim that this is the, you know, she's the one who, who birthed it, if you will. Um, it's been kicked around a couple times to this year alone. Uh, President Obama mentioned it in February. Bernie Sanders mentioned it in early September. Uh, there's definitely a lot of a groundswell of support, though, for giving Medicare this ability to negotiate. You know, a study by Kaiser Family Foundation last month found that, that an overwhelming majority of Americans are okay with that. Because really, I mean, it, it, it's as free market as you can get. <laughs> exactly. Um, so pivoting over to the other side of, of government healthcare, care, um, if we look at Medicaid, what's her plan there? Well, essentially, because Medicaid can negotiate out um, rebates from drug manufacturers, the average cost of the medicine that is paid for by Medicaid is lower than the cost of the same medication that is paid for by Medicare. Isn't there so, a, a federal law requiring a discount from sticker prices for Medicaid? You know, I'm not sure what that discount is, um, but it's definitely lower. And And I think that what Hillary is saying that she wants to do, according to her plan, is to be able to say, okay, if I have low-income people on Medicare that maybe don't qualify for Medicaid in certain states, maybe their income is slightly above the level that would allow them to qualify for it, but they're still below the federal poverty level, um, let's go ahead and let them get their drugs through the Medicaid program. And you know, according to studies that she cited, that theoretically could save up to $100 billion over time. Uh, because, again, these are seniors who use a lot of drugs, and it seems kind of silly for you to be on Medicare uh, and paying more money than your neighbor who may be on Medicaid is paying for the same medicine. Right. And another large aspect of this plan that she laid out had to do with research and development spending. How exactly does this plan uh, intend on combating any issues that are surrounding R&D spending? 
what's interesting is that I don't think that this plan, uh, part of the plan, is targeting you know Pfizer or some of the large drug makers. No, it's it's calling out Turing Pharmaceuticals and these companies that are in the business of buying existing drugs and not spending a dime on research and development for their own drugs. So essentially, my opinion is that this is is a shot across the bow to people who are in the business of rebranding and repricing existing therapies with exorbitant price tags, uh, yet not going forward and taking some of the profit that's being generated and putting it back into R&D for other, other drugs. So uh, my opinion is that this isn't um, necessarily a, a, a big part of the plan as far as you know curbing prices, um, but on the margins it could you know, result in more money being spent in the science end of things, uh, which theoretically, you know, that could lead to new medicines. So essentially what the plan wants to do is take a given percentage and demand that that percentage of your revenue goes back into R&D? I don't believe she's gone on record and cited exactly what the percentage would be. Um, My feeling, though, is that it's going to be a percentage that's lower than what most drug biopharma companies are spending already today. And so it might not actually affect too much R&D spending of most of the pharmaceutical and biotech companies that we talk about. One thing that could really affect these companies, though, is getting rid of the tax breaks that allow drug makers to deduct their spending on marketing as a business expense. Yeah. One of the things we've seen in the last 10 years, a huge uptick in you know the amount of direct-to-consumer advertising uh, from the biopharma uh, industry, you know you can't turn on a TV and not see an ad for you know some of these drugs, and you know you listen to this list of side effects, and it almost makes you wonder if it's better to have the uh, the, the disease than the treatment. Um, you know, I th- I think that there's a lot of concern that direct-to-consumer advertising, even if it has all of these disclaimers can influence a patient to um, go after a medicine that may not be the best medicine for their condition. Uh, and, and people who would believe that would, would then say that, you know, it's really the doctor who should be engaging with the patient. Now, you could, the other argument could be that, you know, maybe this sparks some people who are suffering from conditions to go visit a doctor and begin that conversation. So there is some debate. However, should the taxpayer be collecting less in tax revenue because of this direct consumer advertising? I think that's the crux of what she's saying. If we get rid of the ability for them to write that off as a business expense, then in theory, more money is collected in taxes that could then be doled back out to, say, the National Institute of Health research budget, which is used to fund promising research at educators, public and private institutions, et cetera. Yeah, and she's estimated that billions of additional dollars would end up being paid in taxes by these big companies if you were to get rid of this tax advantage. So that could really be pretty huge. Um, Let's talk about another aspect of the plan uh, that has to do with drug exclusivity. Todd, what's the deal here? Exclusivity is a, you know, I don't think this is a, a big needle mover. There are two ways that drug makers protect the market exclude the, the they have market protection for the drugs that they launch okay you have patents which are usually filed pretty early in the development cycle before these drugs you know reach the fda and, and eventually hopefully may reach the market and then you have exclusivity which is the number of years that you're guaranteed not to have to fight out 
with generic competitors. Um, usually patents last longer than exclusivity. So changing exclusivity from the 12 years that it is now, for example, for biologics to seven years may or may not move the, you know, impact a, a couple companies. But on balance, uh, you know, I think that this is one that probably isn't going to have that huge of an impact and, and may not may not go very far. So that seems like kind of a non-item. But let's pivot to something that I think seems like it could totally be an issue, particularly for health insurers, actually. So one other aspect of Clinton's plan would be to limit the amount of money that patients pay out of pocket for medicines to $250 per month, which is a good bit less than many people are paying now. You know, insurers have made the decision to increase the out-of-pocket expenses and the co-pays associated with a lot of drugs. And they do that because drug prices have indeed skyrocketed. And this is one of the ways that they try and limit their exposure um, and maintain their margins, which actually the margins are relatively thin, um, three to five percent for most insurers. So, you know, it's the, the incentive is big for them to try and find innovative, innovative ways to share the cost with with patients. Problem is, you get to a certain point, and now you're making choices as far as, okay, do I pay for this medicine or do I pay my electric bill? And, you know, those that's an untenable situation. Um, what she wants to do is reduce it to $250 a month, maximum out of pocket for patients, or cap it at $3,000 per year. That's not an unreasonable number. I mean, you see plans offered in the marketplace that use similar numbers to that. Um, and there is some precedent because the ACA plans that are available on the Obamacare exchanges also have out-of-pocket limits um, on total health care spending and such. So I, I think that this is one that could actually have some legs and could make a huge impact for uh, patients um, in the process, of course, squeezing insurers. So we're going to have to watch that dynamic pretty closely. So we see insurers potentially being squeezed here. We see drug makers potentially finding their wiggle room in negotiations decreasing. It seems like there are a lot of losers in the healthcare sector due to this proposal, potentially. Who could be a winner, though? Well, there are definitely winners. And, uh, and we'll get to the losers in a second, too, because I think there's an important takeaway to take up there as, as well. But in my personal opinion, the winners are going to be generic drug makers, those that are making generic small molecule and generic biosimilars to biologic drugs, they have a huge potential, especially since one of the things that was outlined in her plan was to boost the FDA budget to expedite the approval of generic drugs. So you could end up with these generic drug makers getting more drugs to the market more quickly. Obviously, that would help sales and profit. You could also see a benefit for pharmacy benefit managers like Express Scripts, you know, companies that manage drug programs for healthcare payers uh, with an eye on saving money by increasing, increasing adherence rates and converting people over to generic drugs from branded drugs. So those are two of the winners. A third winner could be pharmacy companies. I mean, think about it. One of the things that we've seen with the falling prices for uh, Gilead Sciences hepatitis C drugs has been increased utilization and script growth. So if prices fall and more people can afford them, Pharmacies may benefit by seeing more volume. I can absolutely see that. And so you said that you also wanted to talk a little bit about some of the losers. Yeah, I mean, I want to have, 
you know, there's a caveat here that I think all investors should consider before pressing the sell button on their healthcare stocks. It's very difficult to look into the future and figure out what the unintended consequences of any policy changes could be. You know, if you go back in time to when Obamacare was first talked about, everyone felt that every single healthcare company was going to end up seeing their profit fall into the toilet. That's not what happened. It ended up being an incredibly profit profitable uh, program for most of the players in healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. So I want mm-hmm. to urge investors to instead of worrying about these short-term political maneuvering that's associated with election year cycle, I want them instead to look at what's the long-term trend for healthcare demand, okay? With so many seniors, an aging, larger, and insured population in America, demand for healthcare services and products is going to grow over the next 20 years, not shrink. And I think that that is the thing that most investors should be focused on today. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the biggest takeaway this is not something to freak out over yet. I mean, historically, politically driven drug price scares haven't amounted to much. And also, there's a huge difference between a presidential hopeful's unveiled plans and actual legislation. I mean, you you referenced the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Investors who sold off their health care holdings back then missed out on huge gains over the last five years. I mean, even after giving back some of its gains recently, the iShares Biotechnology ETF is up an incredible 290 percent over the past five years. And that's compared to 70 percent for the S&P 500. So, of course, you can't invest by looking backwards. But to me, it seems like, and Todd, you mentioned this too, all signs point to continued profitability in the sector. And I mean, as always, do your research when you're picking out different stocks. Uh, Todd and I could have interests in the stocks that we've talked about today. The Motley Fool could have formal recommendations for or against. But I would really encourage all of our listeners to dig in. And the heightened emotion right now that's causing a lot of these companies to drop could present a really awesome buying opportunity. So as long-term investors, we want to remind you to keep a cool head and focus on finding the most profitable companies in the sector. And other sectors as well and hold on to them. Todd, thank you so much for being here today. And folks, thanks for listening and Fool On. 